0: we start this new book of the Bible, this new series going through this book, uh, what I'm going to try and do a little bit this morning is get you a bit familiar with it. So we're going to look through it just a little bit more than we would normally do. We're going to hop around a little bit uh, to get into it. A- and in actual fact, though we've read the first 11 verses, we're going we're to settle down really on verse 1. Okay, I think I'm going to break my record for how few words I am going to deal with from the Bible this morning. Um, But let's see how we go. And I'm sure we'll be blessed. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, that it is a living word that you have given to us, your creatures, so that we might understand you better. And also, Lord, so that we might understand ourselves better. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you'd help us as we look into some of the treasures in your word that tell us about what you have done for us. So, Lord, bless us, we pray, and help us to understand these things. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Who are you? I wonder if someone was to to say to you, tell me about yourself, uh, and, and often that happens at the end of a morning service, doesn't it? What would you say? What would be the the things you'd want that person to know? What are the important things that define you in terms of your identity? Perhaps you'd identify yourself by where you come from. A lot of people might start there. Uh, Many people take uh, some sort of pride in, in, in thinking of themselves and telling people that they're a local boy. Or a local girl, you know, I'm local, I'm, I'm from here, this is, this is my, my sort of place. For some of us, it's got more to do with the county that we're born in. That's where the pride really is, isn't it? Uh, for others, it's, it's the country. Uh, and you can, you can take a title accordingly to those things, can't you? So I'm a Brit, yeah, and that's, that's how I want to introduce myself when I'm abroad, perhaps. Or I'm English, for some of us. Uh, or I'm a Yorkshireman. Yeah, that, that, that defines me. I'm a Yorkshireman or I'm a Derbyshireman. I'm not sure there's... Is there a, I don't think there's a shortening for that, is there? But more locally, I'm a spyrite. I think apparently, according to Wikipedia, you're either a spyrite or a chessy. I don't know which one you think you are if you're, if you're born and raised here. Perhaps you like to identify yourself by your political views. In some contexts, that's, that's what you'll do. It's not my, not my kettle of fish, I have to say. Or your religious affiliations, perhaps. You know, where you where you are theologically, and you, you want to do it by that. Or, for a lot of us, I guess, by your profession. What it is you do, twenty, you know, at 9 to 5 each day. Identity has become a more and more important issue for people in our world, especially in the modern world, in the West. And it seems that people want to define, uh, define themselves, you'll see, sp- certainly in the media... Primarily in terms of probably ethnicity, gender, or sexual preferences. Uh, They tend to be the big things people want others to know about them for some reason, one reason or another. And probably you will see your identity then as being a mixture of all of the above. Yeah, all the things that we've talked about. But the point is the way that you identify yourself reveals what you think is important for people to know about you, right? And that might, de- that might determine, be determined by the context that you're in. But this is how you want people to see that you are defined. Now then, as we commence our journey through this letter to the Philippians, I mean, who are they? It's important to consider how the Philippians, how the citizens of this city called Philippi, would have identified themselves. Philippi was a town with a really proud heritage, you see. It was originally founded <clears throat> by the father of Alexander the Great, the bloke that conquered most of the world. You know, this is a bloke that cries because there's, no there's no more kingdoms to take. Uh, and so this is Philip of Macedon, his father, in 360 BC, founded Philippi after he defeated the Thracians. But a few centuries later, in 42 BC, so now now we're going to think, this is almost in living memory of the writing of this letter. This is about as far back as World War I is to us. A big event happens. This place, this location, became the setting of a great and important battle in the founding of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, I mean, we we know a little bit about him because of Shakespeare, don't we? The founder, actually, of the Roman Empire had been murdered, et tu Brute. Remember all of that sort of stuff with Brutus? He'd been murdered, and the destiny of the empire was at stake. And the the army that was loyal to Caesar, now he's dead, but the army loyal to him, under the command of his adopted son Octavian and Mark Antony fought and won the decisive battle of Philippi against Brutus and Cassius. It's a history lesson, isn't it, this morning? This put Octavius, better known as Caesar Augustus, now we're in the Gospels, aren't we, on the throne as the first Roman Empire over the whole of the the, the empire. Amazing thing. And to honour that victory... Philippi, this city, was given a a really special status. It was a Roman colony. It was Little Rome, literally, this place. And it was established right up on the northern edge of Greece. There should be a a little map that can show you where it is. So we're talking up here. So a bit of away from Rome, aren't we? But this is Rome away from Rome. (laughs) This is my Rome away from Rome. It meant that it was Roman soil. That's what it meant. Roman land land laws, Roman tax privileges. So there's kind of like a bit of a tax break here. It had like a Roman-style theatre, a large forum. It had temples to the Roman gods up in its Acropolis. And the buildings and even the local coinage as they're being dug up, we find bore inscriptions in Latin not in Greek. Remember, Greek was the lingua franca. It, it was the language spoken all over the empire, except right in Rome, where it's Latin. And now here's a little Rome. And Philippi had a great economy, fertile lands around it, gold mines nearby, and it was positioned on a major trade route, the Via Ignatia. So, as you can imagine, a, a place like this became a haven. It's like Bognor Regis, in a way, or, or something like that. A haven for retired Roman citizens. Sorry, that might be unfair to Bognor Regis, but I don't know. That's my impression of it. Military veterans, retired Roman citizens. here They come a, a bit away from Rome, away from the, the, the hustle and bustle, but to a place that's very, very familiar. All the fashions, all the trends, all the privileges of being in Rome, but, but away from Rome. And if you'd asked the locals to tell you about themselves, no doubt one of the first things they would have said, I'm sure with a sense of pride, is, I'm I'm a Philippian, yeah? I'm a Roman citizen, a Philippian. And that would have been how they would have thought of themselves. And we know a little bit about the church in this city as well, because we've just learned a few weeks ago, haven't we, about how it was first founded when we were in Acts chapter 16. You can look up those sermons if you missed them. But just in short, Paul and his team had set out to break new ground in Asia, the province of Asia. That's Turkey. But after a long trek right across that country of Turkey, and it's a big place, isn't it? They walked right across it. God had directed their path, closing doors left, right and centre, over hundreds of miles, and then a little boat ride as well right to the edge of Europe. So now we're in Europe. And they'd arrived in Philippi, and having spent a few days sizing the place up, they went on the Sabbath to a place of prayer, just outside the city, by the riverside. And here, they met a wealthy woman named Lydia. And when Paul started to share the gospel there by the riverside the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. That's how, it's, that's how Luke puts it. That is, a heart in this lady that was once closed had been supernaturally opened, made able to respond by faith to the good news about Jesus. Now, I, I like to picture this. It must have been quite a spectacle down there by the river that day. I mean, we, we, we think of this as a bit of a low-key event, but I'm sure it wasn't. Having heard what Jesus had done for her, how he's paid for her sins on the cross once for all so that she could be forgiven and made right with God. Joy of joys, Lydia believes, along with others in her household, and there and then, by the river, on that very day it seems, they get down into the water and they are baptised and declare themselves to be followers of Christ. Lydia's become a wholehearted, full-on follower of Jesus. And she then insists that Paul and his missionary team set up base right in her home, this wealthy woman. I wonder if the church was still meeting there when about 10 years later this letter arrives on the doormat. I wonder if that's the place they're meeting, in Lydia's house. Another household was also converted in, right in those early days, Paul and Silas, you remember, had gotten into trouble with the authorities because they'd cast a demon out of a slave girl who was making money for her owners by fortune-telling. And they were beaten and they were put into prison. But during the night, an earthquake had destroyed the jail. I mean, literally, the doors had flown open, we're told, and the chains had come off all the prisoners. The jailer had arrived on the scene in a panic. I mean, the jail was probably part of his his house, an extension on his house. But after a quick assessment, he had opted to take his own life. And then Paul stops him, steps in. And that night, Paul preached the good news about Jesus to that man's entire household. And they too were told, put their trust in Jesus and were baptized. So you can imagine the church in Philippi, we've pictured it before, haven't we? It's a mixture of rich and poor, young and old, high and low, all proud Philippians in this Roman colony. Radically saved, though, and brought together in one lovely, diverse family together. Well, it's now about 10 years later, and Paul is back in prison again, not in Philippi, but he's writing to them, probably from some kind of long term house arrest in Rome itself. Uh, And that he's in chains is actually clear right from the start of the letter. So if you get it open in front of you, take a look down the page in chapter 1, at verse 12, where Paul writes this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for christ that's why paul's in prison and this whole letter as he writes to this church that he founded and and got to know in philippi is full of affection he loves these people he clearly loves this church and his letter is full of joy as we've said earlier in fact the words joy and rejoice occur 14 times in this letter giving it a sort of a, a wonderful flavor Perhaps chapter 4, verse 1, best captures the way the apostle feels about them. Just flick over the page to that, where Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. See how he talks about them? His joy and crown. So this is not a letter that's particularly addressing some kind of gross sin that's happened in the church, something gone wrong or some false teaching that needs purging from the church, and you guys need to get your acts together. It's more a letter of challenge to dear friends. So please hear it that way. It's challenging friends, people he loves, urging them to keep pressing on in the Christian life. And consider the following. Look at chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, just quickly. This is my prayer, says Paul. This is, this is what's on his heart for these people. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Or look at chapter 2, verse 5. This is what he wants for them. Oh, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus' I want you to look and think like Jesus, he's saying. Or later on in chapter 2, verse 12, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. See what he wants from them? Or chapter 3, finally, verses 16 to 17, Let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. We've shown you a pattern of how to live, Philippians. Now do it. Become that way. Work out your faith. If I had to pick one verse that captures the flavour of the letter and and really what it's about, it would probably be chapter 1, verse 27. Take a look at that. 27 and 28 Paul writes this whatever happens conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you oh boy that's a challenge isn't it And I think it captures this letter and what it's all about. So I'm sure we're going to be tremendously blessed as we journey through this little letter over the coming weeks. But we're going to start today by just looking a little closer then at that opening paragraph. Kind of like the the, the, the bit that will be almost incidental at the top of the letter as Paul introduces himself, puts his name on it. Verses 1 to 2. Just have a look at them again with me briefly. So Paul starts the letter this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two points to make this morning as we just open this letter up. First of all, it's a letter from slaves. It's a letter from slaves. That's weird, isn't it? So if you're familiar with, Uh, with the way that the letters in the New Testament tend to start, you'll notice something a little bit odd here. This is the only letter Paul writes to a church where he introduces himself as a servant along with Timothy. In fact, the word more accurately is it's slaves, slaves of Christ. That's how he's introducing himself. Normally, Paul introduces himself, doesn't he, as an apostle. That's a title of authority that he's establishing. He He doesn't need to do that here with the Philippians, clearly. To be an apostle of Christ meant that you were a messenger sent with the authority of Christ himself behind you. But that's not what's on Paul's mind here. In other letters, like Galatians, for example, do you remember when we went through that? Paul's at pains to defend his apostleship is an important thing to make very clear that his commission doesn't come from the authority of any man, but rather it comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now this is, of course, this letter as we read it, the, You know, it is written with that same authority. <laughs> Even though he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle, they know he's an apostle. But that's not what... He wants to emphasise, as he starts writing, to the Philippians. So why does Paul call himself, and Timothy, a slave of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus? Why is that Paul's important identifier? That's what he wants them to think of him as. I mean, more basically, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, perhaps it would help us to look at what Paul says elsewhere. A a really helpful passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll pop it up on the screen and have a look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. This is Paul reasoning with them. He says this. He who was a slave when he was called by the Lord, and that's a literal slave, you know, someone working for a slave master, if you are a slave and you're called by the Lord, that man is a Lord, is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So here, Paul's describing a really interesting paradox. Okay, it's not an easy sentence, is it? If you were a slave, an actual slave, says Paul, when you first responded to the call of Christ in the gospel, then you ought to be rejoicing in your freedom, says Paul. You are free, despite still being a slave, you are free in a deeper sense and a more important sense than if you bought your freedom from your master. You've just been given and you've just received an incredible freedom. That's what the gospel does, you see. It sets us free. In other words, though it's great to be able to buy your freedom, and actually Paul says, if you are a slave, you should. You should try to do that if you can. But here's the point. It's a secondary issue for you. The more important issue is, you know, you could buy yourself, but the more important issue is Christ has bought you. Christ, a new master, has purchased you, even in your slavery. That's what's happened to you. And so then, whether you are the lowest slave, or you are a respected member of the upper classes, and anything in between on that spectrum, if Christ has bought you, you are now his property. You you belong to him. You're his possession. You're his slave. And that is the truest form of freedom you can have that's the point he's making you see how this paradox works before christ bought you and we looked at this a little bit last week didn't we you were a slave to sin but with the freedom that is found only in christ you are now free in the power of the holy spirit to live a life that's pleasing to god rather than pleasing to men that's kind of how he ends those verses there isn't it don't become slaves of men The things we do tend to fall in one of these two categories, don't they? Either we do what we do to please people, to earn favour and admiration from people around us, or, and I'd conclude in that category, even to please ourselves. That's still pleasing man, isn't it? Or, so we either do that, or, with the freedom we find in Christ, we do the things that please him. And so there's basically just those two options there that Paul's presenting to us. A servant, says Paul, or a slave of Christ learns to live to please him rather than just to please man, to please themselves, to please others. And I think this gets to the heart of what Paul means here when he calls himself, and he calls Timothy and those who work with him, slaves of Christ, It's a good description of what a Christian should be. They've been set free from their former way of life, and now they live to please God. They've got a new master, regardless of what men may say. And that's an important point, isn't it? It doesn't matter what anyone else is saying, because they're not my master. (laughs) I've got a new master. Indeed, that's actually the very reason Paul says he's in prison in the first place, because he's not doing what pleases men but he's serving his new master. There is no lasting joy to be found in slavery to sin. In slavery to sin, all there is is momentary pleasure. But slaves of Christ can know a deep joy in his service and a peace that the world around them has never experienced. And that will be the flavor of this letter as we get into it. Paul knows this deep joy even when he's sitting in a damp room with chains on his wrists. And that is the joy that he also wants them and us to know. And please don't miss the, the, the weirdness, the strangeness of what we've got here in this letter. You've got a man writing to his friends from a prison cell, saying, as he does in chapter three seventeen. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters. Here I am, under house arrest, in trouble with the authorities, a prisoner. Follow my example. The even more staggering thing is that Paul gets that example, gets his example, the example of being God's servant, from the Son of God himself. You know, probably the best-known bit in this letter, and really you could argue the heart of it, is that passage in chapter 2. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, some say it was, it was probably a hymn in the early church. Take a look at it. Chapter 2, where Paul instructs us, the whole point of this hymn is you need to adopt the same attitudes. Have the same mind and heart as Christ did. Have a look at verse 6, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 who being in very nature God, he's talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Same word here, slave, taking the nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. You see, Jesus calls us to do nothing more than he did himself and he's setting the example in his entire life you know in, in what must have been probably one of the most awkward scenes in the gospel accounts Jesus' disciples discover that two of them james and john have enlisted the help of their mum to ask jesus if he would give them the two most important positions in his kingdom when it comes Uh, And now you have to understand that the rest of the disciples are probably mostly cross at this point, because they didn't think to do that first, or they didn't have a mum that they could bring in to argue their case. Jesus later catches them, and this must have been even more awkward for them, actually having an argument. Can you imagine this, when Jesus comes into the, uh, well, actually they're on the road at the time, but Jesus turns back and comes to the group and says what what are you talking about and they all look at their feet because actually all they have been talking about as they've been journeying down the road is which of us then is the greatest? what do you reckon which of us is the is the greatest (laughs) which of us is the best disciple the top disciple which one do you think jesus would give first position to but you see once they understood what the cross was about what jesus's life was really all leading to that whole way of thinking suddenly for them went out the window. It shapes and flavours everything they do after, after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And these verses in chapter 2 capture the, the heart that Jesus wants them to have as they follow his example. Look at what's said here in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is the highest being in the universe. That's what it's saying. Our creator. He's our sustainer. We depend on him for our life. He's above everything. And yet he didn't come to this earth to be served by his creation, by his creatures. Jesus could have been born in royalty, couldn't he? He could have been raised in a palace. He could have asserted his authority to subjugate the world so that all of his creatures served him hand and foot. And he had a right to do so. It would have been just to do so. But instead, he came to serve us. No sacrifice, actually, as this is saying, no sacrifice was too big. Even to the point of giving his life as our ransom, as the price to set us free. And brothers and sisters, if that doesn't move your heart into humble service, wanting to be his servant... Then nothing will. Follow the example of Paul as he follows the example of Christ. So, this then is a letter, first of all, from slaves of Christ, a challenge for us to be like them, to deny ourselves and to live a life of service. And that will be all through this letter. But it is also, secondly, a letter to saints in christ paul and timothy says in verse one servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus at philippi i wonder if that also caught you a little bit off guard when you read the introduction what does that mean saints is is this letter actually written to a particularly special group of people well no it's not it's just written to ordinary christians Why does Paul call those he's writing to saints? The word literally means, it's just the plural of of the noun holy. It basically just means holy ones, holies. I'm writing to the holies, the holy ones in Philippi. It's a word that's become muddled for us because of the way it gets used by the Roman Catholic Church, let's be honest. They use it to refer to special individuals who the church deems to have lived a particularly special life holy life but here's the thing that word is used 40 times in the new testament and each time it's speaking about a group not an individual speaking about ordinary christians the only time it's ever used in the singular of a saint is actually at the end of philippians where they're told to greet every saint in christ jesus again talking about the whole church this is paul's favorite word for a christian You notice if you read through the New Testament, Paul never actually uses the word Christians, does he? But he does use saints. That's how he talks about Christians. That is a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, according to Paul. If you are a believer, you can legitimately turn to the person next to you at the end of the service, don't do it right now, and say, good morning, St. Rudy, or good morning, St. Brenda, or St. Peter at the back there. You've got St. George at the back over there, and talk to him about dragons later. So in what sense am I holy? Why is that a good title for Christians? What does that mean? Well, holiness is a, is, is a, is a, is a complicated concept in the Bible. You know, there's still time that, for you to catch up with the book that we're reading uh, in Book Club at the moment. We're only three chapters in, and they're short chapters, and it's only a little book. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness. You can join us in that if you want to explore the subject more fully. Brilliant little book, this But essentially, the word means to be set apart. Set apart as special. And it could mean that in the sense of purity, keeping it really, really pure, or simply in being completely unlike anything else, just unlike others. And it's a word that captures the essence of what God is like. In fact, I don't think we really even grasp just how other and holy and different God is. I mean, you might know that in, in ancient Hebrew, in the language of Hebrew, the way you emphasise, underline, they didn't, didn't underline words or put them in italics, the way that they emphasised a word was to, was to repeat it. So you double it. There's a brilliant little example in, in Genesis chapter 14. The Sidim Valley in a valley somewhere, is described as being, literally in the language, this, this place was pits, pits of tar. Okay, pits, pits of tar, which means completely covered in pits, in tar pits. You know, you can't walk through this place without falling into one. Now imagine if you used the word three times. Well, the only word really used three times like that in Hebrew, which means go crazy with emphasis. Happens when God is described as holy, holy, holy. In other words, there is nothing in all creation like God. He is totally other, different. There's no point in even trying to hold up something with which to compare him. He has nothing to compare to him. And we too then are called to be holy like God is, within the limits that are available to a creature that is we're to be fundamentally different from the world that we live in and we're to be morally pure in other words we are to be righteous in god's eyes there's a big overlap between the concept of righteousness and holiness in the bible how can that ever describe you and i how can that be you and me well it cannot except when it is understood the way that verse one puts it take a look He refers to them as holy in Christ. And that is a consistent picture throughout the New Testament. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about us this way. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. See that? In Christ. Or 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It's up on the screen again. He who saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ. That's the only way holiness is possible, before the beginning of time. So holiness is possible, but only for those who have been chosen and called to be in Christ. In Christ, in him, united to Jesus And here's the point I hope you'll see quite clearly as we go through the book. We are saints in Christ Jesus before we become holy or saintly in our moral behaviour, in the way that we act and live. The first is our new identity. You are saints, you are holy. The second is what we are becoming over time as our behaviour comes more and more into line with that new identity that we have. This is what Paul is rooting for with the Philippians. This is what the letter's about. He wants these saints that he's writing to, to keep growing in saintliness, so that they get to the place where God wants them to be. Take a look at chapter 3, and this is really helpful, I think. Chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. And we'll, we'll finish on this. Here, Paul's using himself as an example again. He's just been talking about how before he came to know Christ, he gives a little biography here, before he came to know Christ, he might have had every reason to have confidence in his righteousness. Any outsider that was looking at Paul's impressive life and his impeccable credentials would have assumed he was a righteous or a holy man. But he says this in verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for for whose sake I have lost all things. And now he's talking about all of those credentials. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and that is by faith. Now, pay attention as that stays on the screen. Pay attention to verse 9. Paul says he happily gave up all confidence in his past credentials and achievements, all of his law-keeping and good living. He considers them rubbish compared to Christ because these things could not produce the righteousness or the holiness that he needed. But he says, in Christ, he has obtained the righteousness that he needed. And look carefully. It is not a righteousness of his own that would come from keeping God's law, and being a good boy. But rather, a righteousness, a holiness, which is through faith in Christ. From God, not himself. By faith, not by working for it. Do you see that? So you see, Paul himself discovered that righteousness, that is, a, a holy standing with God, could be achieved simply by trusting Jesus, which in fact is exactly what he told to the jailer in Philippi. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And in that moment, as he believed in Christ as his saviour, he was immediately in a right standing with the three times holy God who had made him. But let's complete the picture. A few verses later, look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So Paul recognises that even though he is a saint in Christ, <clears throat> and even though he is not what he once was, he still is not yet what he one day will be. He is not, as he puts it, perfected yet. He's not perfect. That is, he's not yet the finished project product that, that God has designed him to be. But each day, he says, I will press on towards that goal that christ called me for that's where this letter is going that's what this letter wants for its reader well i've told this illustration many times i think because i find it so helpful the german monk martin luther described the day of our conversion as like a wedding day between a great king christ and a peasant girl us so picture that day That very day, having said her marriage vows, she becomes queen. Amazing. It's a fairy tale story, isn't it? That is who she is. That is her new identity. She can, if people can say to her, Tell me about yourself, you say, I'm queen. That's her identity. But she does not immediately act like a queen, of course. Her language might be a bit coarse. You think, ooh, where that come from she almost certainly doesn't know which cutlery to use does she when she sits down to the banquet her behavior though will grow steadily more royal as the years roll by but she is no less royal that first day than she will be at the end of her life and the same is true of us in christ united to him by faith We are holy. We are saints. Our behaviour, our thinking, our doing is not yet perfected. No, we're not yet the finished product. But we press on each day towards the goal for which Christ Jesus has called us. And so it is my prayer also, brothers and sisters, that this book would encourage us to grow in holiness And to grow in humble service as servants of Christ as we daily grow to be more like our King himself. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the astonishing example of your Son who left the highest heights of glory to serve those he had made. Even giving his life for sinners like us. Help us to press on towards that goal for which you have chosen and called us, Father. To be a holy people, serving you in joy and imitating his example. For we ask this in his good and holy name. Amen. Well, We're going to finish our service by singing a wonderful hymn. This one is a proper hymn golden oldie it's lovely love divine all loves excelling there is no love like the love of god for his people so let's sing about that love right now love divine all loves excelling please stand and sing